Hello and welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. Let's begin this week's episode by reading out a poem that was sent to us by Hollywood actor Pierce Brosnan. I dreamt I played Assassin's Creed and it was set in Leitrim. I leap from the Leitrim steeple. I leap from the Leitrim steeple. I kill my enemies one by one. I am the assassin. If you have ever hurt me or done me wrong, I will kill you. I leap from the Leitrim steeple. I leap from the Leitrim steeple. So that was sent in by Pierce Brosnan. Um, it doesn't have a title. Pierce Brosnan, who's actually from Drada. You know, you wouldn't think Pierce Brosnan is Irish. You'd think... He's one of these lads I'd describe as mid-Atlantic. You know, mid-Atlantic. Whatever the fuck that means. You know, you hear about who'd be mid-Atlantic. Pierce Brosnan is mid-Atlantic. Daniel Day-Lewis is mid-Atlantic. Kind of Gabriel Byrne. Almost Gabriel Byrne. Gabriel Byrne is just there off the coast of the Aran Islands. But some of these actors are mid-Atlantic. Pierce Brosnan is your archetypal mid-Atlantic actor. It's like he's Irish but there's there's something else there and you don't know what it is because it's not American and it's not English. It's mid-Atlantic. But there's nothing in the middle of the Atlantic. There's nothing there. It's just a lot of fucking ocean. So what does that mean? It's Pierce Brosnan from the middle of the ocean, the middle of the Atlantic. Is that is that what that means? This week's episode is sponsored by Pierce Brosnan. Remember when he was James Bond? Remember when Pierce Brosnan was James Bond? Sure, God help him. I suppose he had to adopt that mid-Atlantic accent. Like, if you've... Like a Drahada... A Drahada accent is a very, very strange accent. Very odd accent. I couldn't even begin to do an impression of the Drahada accent because it's just so different to a Limerick accent. Drahada accent, it sounds like someone who is perpetually drinking a glass of water. That's what it sounds like. It's like they're always drinking a glass of water and talking at the same time. That's what the Drahada accent is. Fuck it, I have, I have a glass of water here that I keep so that my mouth doesn't get dry. Let's give it a go. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and talk with my mouth full of water. and th- Let's see if my, my thesis is correct that the Drahada accent sounds like somebody drinking water. <laughs> I was in a garden, mate. I'm James Bond. I'll shoot you with my gun. I'm a spy. I'm James Bond. I'm Pierce Brosnan. <laughs> not, not far off. Not far off the actual drawhead accent. So that, that's what, that's how Pierce Brosnan should sound. Actually, I got in shit for this before. Pierce Brosnan. He's, he's from. Okay, he was born in Drogheda, but he was raised in Navin. So now the Navin and Drahada accents are, are similar but not the same. So there's a big fight that goes on between Drahada people and Navin people over who gets to own Pierce Brosnan. But you know what, lads? Nobody fucking owns Pierce Brosnan because he's mid-Atlantic. He belongs to a school a school of sperm whales off the coast of Greenland. So that's nearly four minutes there of Pierce Brosnan content. And uh, seeing as he's sponsoring this this week's episode, I think four four minutes of Pierce Brosnan content is what he deserves. This is not sponsored by Pierce Brosnan, lads. That was a fib. 
If you're a brand new listener to this podcast, go back and listen to some earlier episodes. Especially if you've been directed to this podcast because you want to hear some of my mental health episodes. Alright, and you're wondering why the fuck is this cunt talking about Pierce Brosnan for four minutes. So go back and listen to some earlier episodes. That's what I always say to brand new listeners. Familiarise yourself with the lore of this podcast. To regular listeners, the henpeck Declans, the perpetual Jennifers, you're very welcome. You're very welcome. So, what I'd like to do for this, what I'd like to do this week is... Two weeks ago, I did a podcast which was very well received by ye. It was the podcast about chicken fillet rolls, where I spoke about chicken fillet rolls, the iconography of them, the history of them, and what they mean to Irish culture. And I started off sceptically, saying, fuck that, I'm not doing a chicken fillet roll podcast, but I did it and I enjoyed it. And it got really good feedback, and I liked doing it, and I stepped out of my comfort zone. And since then, I've had numerous requests from ye to do similar podcasts, as in to just take it. The, the, the requests have been, I liked your Chicken Philip podcast. Take something else from Irish culture, just a thing, and speak about it and give us a hot take. Um, obviously, people have been requesting Teenage Discos and Links Africa. Those are two very popular subjects I don't I don't have enough in both of those to do an entire hot take all right but another big request that I got the past two weeks people asking me to talk about Guinness okay which again I was reluctant going Guinness what can I say about Guinness but then I got during the week I got contacted for to contribute to an article there's a journalist called Polly Doyle. And Polly he writes he writes really interesting articles about Irish meme culture. He's like the only mainstream journalist that documents Irish memes and meme culture, which I think is really, really important. He often publishes in, in magazines like Vice. And Polly often gets on to me to contribute to articles about Irish meme culture. And last week he said to me, I'm doing an article about Guinness about what what does what does Guinness mean today and I gave him like I wrote like an, a, a paragraph and as I was writing the paragraph I was going oh fuck I do have quite a lot of hot takes and opinions on Guinness so I'm gonna do a Guinness podcast this is not sponsored by Guinness in any way I mean it's one of those ones this isn't really about Guinness as a drink or a brand. I want to explore Guinness, the icon of Guinness. And not necessarily Guinness, the the, the icon of the, the glass of porter, the pint glass of porter. With the Chicken Fillet Roll podcast, it wasn't about a chicken fillet roll. It's, here's what excites me. I couldn't have done an hour-long podcast about sausage rolls. Just couldn't have done it. Sausage rolls are delicious. They're fantastic. You buy them in the same place that you buy a chicken fillet roll, but they have no cultural significance. And by which I mean something that is, is both a foodstuff and when you bring it up with another human being, it's a conversation starter. 
If I say sausage roll and then that begins a conversation and carries with it loads of emotions and ideas, then it's not just a foodstuff, it's iconic and it's of cultural significance. It's a unit of culture. I don't think sausage rolls have that. Not like chicken fillet rolls do, not like breakfast rolls did. They have a little bit of cultural significance. There's a little bit of meme quality to a sausage roll. Mainly, they're marketed very aggressively. Um, when you go to a deli counter in Ireland in a petrol station, you're not allowed to buy one sausage roll. You're just not allowed. Can I have one sausage roll for 50p? Are you sure you don't want four for a euro? No, I'll just have the one for 50p. They're four for a euro. Four for a you sh- Okay, I'll have four for a fucking euro. That's as far as I can take it with sausage rolls. They're, they're the only kind of non-consensual deli item at the petrol station. You'll always walk out with four sausage rolls and you'll eat one and you'll give three to a crow. And that's an Irish, an Irish modern tradition. But I can't do 90 minutes on that. That's as far as it goes. Now, I could do a podcast on petrol station crows. Because our rooks and ravens. Because that is a... That's an interesting phenomenon there. And it's something I should have touched on with the chicken fillet roll. You know, in my lifetime, I have seen crows change in their appearance and behaviour. Because Irish people have started treating petrol stations as restaurants I've seen this happen and crows as well you know they have historical significance within Irish culture you think of the Morrigan which is an an ancient mythical Irish crow going back like 4,000 years crows represent kind of prophecy or war or fate within Irish culture and now they're just now they just eat sausage rolls at petrol stations like we do like, because Ireland's are, as I explained in the chicken fillet roll episode, Ireland doesn't have a food culture, we don't have a historical food culture, so our closest thing to a food culture is eating this food out of petrol stations. You do tend to see a lot of crows, rooks and ravens, very, very well-fed birds, hanging around petrol stations and walking around the forecourts like they own cars, you know? That's the interesting thing about these birds. Like they're very, very... Because we eat fried food and like wedges and sausage rolls and jam buns and chicken fillet rolls from petrol stations and a lot of people eat them in the in the petrol station forecourt in their car or beside the bins, we tend to just throw our food at the crows. That's the thing you do. Crows, rooks and ravens, very large black birds very intelligent animals I have a lot of time for crows I have a lot of time for crows there's a there's a compassion to them there's an intelligence I have a lot of respect and a lot of time for crows but the ones that walk around the petrol stations have nearly they bicker they do bicker a lot with each other and you can see a hierarchy among them when it comes to who gets the sausage roll but they they kind of because their sole source of food now is us Irish people eating deli food around bins and outside of cars, they've kind of stopped flying a bit. And yeah, they walk around the forecourt as if they themselves have got cars or as if they themselves are interested in petrol. And I often wonder, like, 
Like sometimes I think Like the the first animal in space was a dog Right A dog called Laika And the Russians The Russians uh, before they sent Humans into space They sent this dog A dog in a fucking space costume And they fucked it up into space They sent it up into space in a rocket And I always think like What if What if they shot the dog into space right And humans hadn't been to the moon So humans don't know like Are there fucking aliens up there We don't know we have I don't I don't even know if satellites have been up there yet. So they fucked the dog into space. What happens if an alien catches the spaceship and then the aliens are like, "Oh, this must be uh this must be one of the creatures that's down in that planet art below. All right, let's go say hello." And they open up the capsule and it's a fucking dog in a space suit. <laughs> and then they go, "All right, okay, he must have built this." Fuck me, he's not one for talking, is he? Jesus Christ. Fuck me. And he built this spaceship. And he doesn't even have hands. And they're there looking at the dog's paws, wondering how the dog was able to build such a complicated electronics. And he's panting and licking. You know? So if the aliens found that dog, they'd just go, alright, here's the intelligent life. We can't fuck this. But, like... If aliens now were like concerned about us and concerned about our like our fossil fuel consumption, because if I was an alien, a really smart alien, I'd be like, them them planet Earth man, they're using all their resources, you know, they're they're drinking up all that oil. We can see that the carbon is becoming a problem. We need to warn these cunts about fossil fuels. So the aliens come down, they land in Ireland, and they they go to petrol stations. Because they want to warn us about fossil fuels. And then all they see is a load of fucking crows. Walking around. And more crows than human. Eating chicken fillet rolls. Looking like they're driving cars. So the aliens are going to give the message to the crows. They're going to walk up to a crow. And say. What's the crack Mr. Crow? I see you're here in your petrol station with all your friends. We just need to warn ye. It's really important you got to stop using this shit. The crow just goes caw caw. And the aliens fuck off, and then and then and then the human walks out of the petrol station with his four sausage rolls and says to the crow, "What did I miss?" And the crow just goes, "Nothing. Give me three sausage rolls." So, like, I I couldn't do a full podcast on sausage rolls because that's about the ex. I'm, I am happy with that theory now because that theory just popped into my head, like for economic be- because sausage rolls in petrol stations are marketed so aggressively. That nobody buys one. Instead we buy four. That it's not human food. It's actually crow food. And it is changing the behaviour of crows. And causing crows to stop flying. And to start behaving like an an overweight travelling salesman from Feathered. Just hanging around his Opal Astra. But I could do 90 minutes on a chicken fillet roll. Because it's not just a piece of food, as I explained. It has all this cultural baggage. It has value as a meme. The chicken fillet roll says something about our sense of identity. And the pint of Guinness does the same thing. So what I'd like to interrogate for this week's episode, what I want to establish a thesis around as such, is what is 
the pint of Guinness in 2021, what does it say about us as Irish people? What does it say about Irish identity? And what makes Guinness or just Porter and Stout in general, what makes this significant is with chicken fillet rolls, like they, they just, chicken fillet rolls just have they have cultural significance in the past 10 years and that's it and they didn't exist beforehand but Guinness has existed for a long time so Guinness has always had cultural significance as an icon okay not just something you drink but something you hold in your hand and it says something about you and you're you're trying to communicate something about yourself with it and also the pint of Guinness holds a cultural value that we would like to have a little piece of you know when when you have your pint of Guinness in your hand it's not just a delicious drink you're trying to say something about yourself you're trying to be part of a community it stops being a drink like the chicken fillet roll stops being a sandwich The, the pint of Guinness it is both a drink and something else and I want to figure out what that something else is right now in 2021 and also kind of what that something else was to our parents and our grandparents so Guinness pints of Guinness like I mentioned they've always been present in Irish culture right going back 250-300 years recently the current Guinness discourse and what has shifted the meaning of uh, Guinness to the current generation of young people I think is an Instagram page and th- this is why I'm getting asked so many questions as well this is why people were saying to me blind by can you do a hot take on Guinness or why last week I was asked to contribute to an article about the significant of Gu- significance of Guinness the reason it's happening is because of an Instagram page that was started about a year ago and the Instagram page is called shit London Guinness it's got over 100,000 followers. It started by an Irish lad living in London. And all the Instagram page is, is it's terrible pints of Guinness in pubs all around London. Guinness served in a Foster's glass. Guinness served in a Heineken glass. Guinness served in like one of those weird Italian beer glasses. Terrible looking pints of Guinness. And... It has tons of followers and it creates huge discussion amongst Irish people. And if you look at the comments, you know, you'd have a a terrible pint of Guinness in in a Heineken glass and it looks disgusting. And then all the comments underneath, they're very performative. And I I don't mean performative in in a negative way. I mean, people would comment under the terrible pint and say, oh, what a crime against humanity. And they'll tag their friends and it's like a performed Irishness. It's fun. We're not offended that the Guinness is poured terribly. We're pretend offended. We're performing our offence as a way to have fun and to bond. So shit London Guinness and its sister page Beautiful Pints, which is an Instagram page full of beautifully poured pints of Guinness. Shit London Guinness has now created a, a, a new discourse around pints of Guinness and a new kind of rallying for identity. So I want to get to the bottom of that. Which I'll revisit at the, the end of the podcast. But before I do that. Let's look at Guinness historically. 
let's look at Guinness psychologically and the Irish psyche historically. That's what I'm interested in. So, I've got listeners from all around the world. I don't think I need to explain what a pint of Guinness is. Simply, it is... It's an alcoholic drink called stout, which is a type of beer which is black in colour with a white head and the taste is it has a complex taste you know it it has a taste when you taste it for the first time you're going to go ugh what's that and then you begin to love it Guinness has that I don't know what the name for that is olives have it coffee has it dark chocolate has it you know if you tasted coffee for the first time like if you'd never tasted coffee if you didn't know what coffee was and I gave you an Americana you'd go oh my god what's this weird bitter what the fuck and you'd hate it and then the next day you'd be thinking about it and you'd want to go back and sip again and go I want to taste that horrible thing and by day three you love coffee same with olives black olives in particular It just has a complex, intriguing taste. And there's no middle ground with Guinness. You either love it or fucking hate it. But most people, most people acquire a taste until they really, really love it. And it's made in Ireland and it's an Irish drink and it's Irish stout and it's our national drink. And in the absence of a food culture, as I explained in the previous episode, we do not have a food culture. We have a drink culture. The pint of Guinness is the closest thing that we really have to a fucking food culture. You know, if French people have got their cheese, Spanish people have got their cured meats, you know, we've got our fucking Guinness. We have our Guinness that's ours, it's our tradition. We have strong opinions about it. It's it's truly ours, it's our identity. And not only is it is it part of our identity, it's it's our, our identity internationally. You think of St. Patrick's Day. What comes to mind? Green hats. Don't know what the fuck that's about. Leprechauns. We don't give a fuck about leprechauns. Alright, this is all American shit. Pints of Guinness. That's the shit that we're still doing. So when you think of Paddy's Day, pints of Guinness. Everyone around the world knows the Irish bar. Go to the Irish bar. Have a pint of Guinness. Come to Dublin. Drink a Guinness in Temple Bar. It's There's many factors to the pint of Guinness. So let's... When I'm trying to understand something, I always use the alien metaphor. Like I did earlier. If aliens found the crows in the petrol station, what would they say? Well, if aliens... If I'm trying to understand Guinness, which is difficult to understand because... I'm so close to it. I've grown up with Guinness. I've, you know, you, Guinness is so ubiquitous to Irishness. You don't really give it any critical thought. It's just there all the time. So you don't really give it critical thought. So when I want to give something critical thought, I think, what would an alien think? I think one thing I find interesting is if an alien arrived in Ireland in the 1910s, in the 1920s, in the 1800s, and he saw all these Irish people drinking pints of Guinness. And if that alien was to say to themselves, what's the crack here with Ireland? 
wow, there's an awful lot of priests. Fuck me, the Catholic Church is, is incredibly powerful here in this country. And what do the people do? Alright, okay, so they're, they're very Catholic. And they go to Mass every Sunday. And then, what does the man at Mass say? Oh, the man at Mass says that wine is blood. So they involve themselves in some type of strange cannibal ritual. Where the priest man tells the Irish people to drink the blood of this other man and there's this strange drinking and cannibalism thing going on and then when you go to the pub they seem to drink little glasses of priest so that's the first thing I would say if I was an alien and I didn't know anything I'd say isn't it strange that these Irish people who listen to all these priests who have black shirts with white collars that when these Irish people go to enjoy themselves away from the priests they drink drinks that look exactly like priests. Okay? I find that interesting. You might be thinking, Jesus Christ blind by, you're overthinking it. But if I was an alien, I'd simply go, why is this historically deeply Catholic country that's run by priests, why is their idea of fun to drink a drink that looks exactly like a priest? A pint of Guinness looks like a priest. Okay? black shirt white collar that's what a pint of Guinness looks like it looks like a priest and then the priests tell us to drink blood and eat Christ so we already have a culture of very strange ritualistic cannibalism and now we're also drinking priests so I find that interesting what I also find really interesting is so the Guinness company and Guinness they started making Guinness in 1759 now, this is just me with some mad hot takes. I'm just doing some mad hot takes. If I was an alien, what would I be saying? What things do I find interesting? I just find it interesting that in 1759, in Ireland, at that time, there were the penal laws. And what were the penal laws? The penal laws were... For about a hundred fucking years. From the 1600s up until the 1790s. There were these laws in Ireland that were specifically against Catholics. Okay. The British ruled Ireland. And the penal laws were very oppressive. Um, a Catholic couldn't marry a Protestant. Catholics were forbidden from like public offices. So they couldn't have jobs that were important Catholics were forbidden from access and education Catholics were forbidden from holding a, f a firearm you couldn't have a gun to defend yourself Catholics couldn't inherit land from Protestants how a Catholic passed land if a Catholic did have land how they passed that on to their offspring was I could go on and on systemic oppression into the law was written incredibly deeply oppressive laws against Irish Catholics right from the 1600s up until the 1790s and what it basically did is it, it disenfranchised the Irish Catholic po uh, population it created a Catholic population that lived in some of the worst poverty that in Europe at the time it created a, a generation of Catholics no access to education, no access to language, forbidden from practicing their religion, um, 
you didn't have people who couldn't read or write, people who weren't allowed to speak their native tongue. Extreme, extreme oppression, which then laid the groundwork for the famine. And I just find it interesting that now another another important thing about this is when you disenfranchise an entire population like that over the course of generations, right, and you deny people access to any type of upward mobility and create extreme poverty and deprivation, that also creates a, a culture in which addiction thrives. Okay? Alcoholism and Ireland, that's not a myth. All right? We, tradi- we, we have had serious problems with drink going back hundreds of years. And it's no surprise that why wouldn't you have a culture of abuse of alcohol when you have that much disenfranchisement in the population. So I just find it interesting. The hot take conspiracy theorist in me is like, during the penal laws, you have this dirt poor population, and then they're now drinking these drinks that look like priests. But who's making the drinks? Ah, the, the, this, this brewery called Guinness. Okay. And Guinness which was founded in 1759, at the height of the penal laws, were a very, very Protestant company. Guinness was a straight-up Protestant fucking company. Arthur Guinness, the founder of the company, was a Protestant unionist who descended from a a Protestant fucking family. He he was a a colonizer of Ireland. So, also the Guinness... Guinness only employed Protestants. They did not employ Catholics. They were a very anti-Catholic company right up until fucking the 1930s, lads. All right? Up until 1939. Right? Now, this is the Irish... The Brits are gone at this point. Up until 1939, if a Protestant Guinness worker wanted to marry a Catholic, he had to resign from the company. So... Like, during the 1916 Rising, when the Irish rebels were occupying the GPO to try and get independence, uh, Guinness donated a lot of lorries to the British Army so they could turn them into makeshift tanks. In in 1913, um, Lord Ivy, who I think was like a great-grandson of Arthur Guinness, Lord Ivy was like, again, part of the Guinness family that controlled Guinness in 1913. He gave a hundred thousand pounds to the UVF in 1913. In 1980, Guinness Guinness seriously considered completely rebranding as an English drink and disassociating itself from Irishness completely because Guinness felt that Irishness meant the IRA. So Guinness were like, we can't be looking like a drink for paddies. In, In their mind in 1980... To the Guinness Corporation, Irishness meant terrorism. And they were like, let's get the fuck away from that and pretend now that we're an English drink. And that was a serious plan that they had. And they didn't go ahead with it. They didn't go ahead with it. Probably because of the strength of Paddy's Day. So these people did not like the plain people of Ireland. They did not. They were they were supremacists. They were unionist supremacists who would have heavily identified as British Guinness has always been anti-Catholic, anti-Irish independence. 
this drink that we think of as being the Paddy's drink, the people making it were not Paddy's. Anti-Catholic Irishness is in the very fibre of the history of the Guinness Company. And this is a company set up by a Protestant Unionist at the height of the penal laws. Actual systemic oppression designed to eradicate uh, the Irish Catholic population, let's be honest. So I just find that, why am I saying it? I find it really interesting. It's really fucking interesting. I'm not trying to be all woke. I'm not trying to be woke and say, all lads don't drink Guinness, it's the drink of the oppressor. I'm not saying that at all. 2021. What I'm saying is that it, it, is, it is a fact that the Guinness Company was unionist, explicitly anti-Catholic, selling an intoxicating uh, substance to a mostly Catholic population whose alcoholism was as a result of collective trauma. So that to me seems a little bit, there's a cynicism there that's cynical. And the drinks look like priests, that's cynical to me. And very interesting. Am I saying don't drink Guinness? Absolutely not. Guinness is delicious. Drink away. And if, you, if you're thinking like, that's a bit too far blind boy, that sounds like a conspiracy theory. Look at what the British did in, in China in the 1800s. The British flooded China with opium specifically as a way to dominate and control. They did it, they did it in China. Look at, look at the, the way that the US, the Reagan administration and the Nixon administration in the US, look at what they did to the African-American community um, in, in America. They, at the same time that crack cocaine was flooding African-American communities, they highly criminalized it so that they could lock up uh, mainly black people for s possessing small amounts of crack. And they also, this was all happening at the same time that they were withdrawing funding from like education, healthcare, effectively destroying and disenfranchising the community and then creating the community conditions for addiction to be endemic. So it's not too far-fetched, lads. If, you know, it's not too far-fetched. The penal laws were a thing. That's not conspiracy. And penal laws... Deny people education, the right to vote, the right to own land, the right to have any hope. You're creating a situation whereby addiction will be endemic. And now you have members of the Protestant ascendancy, very wealthy Protestant unionists, selling people the drink that is feeding that addiction. So I don't think that's too far-fetched to take at all. And sometimes I get a lot of people saying to me, Blind bike, you're always blaming the Brits why don't you shut up about this this anti-British stuff? Shut up about it. People need to move on. You're going to stir things up. And what I say to people like that, all I'm doing is I'm taking a decolonial view of history. We were colonised, so I'm working my way backwards to look at the actual colonisation. The penal laws was actual colonisation. And this fear, the fear of... Don't talk about our history. Don't talk about the history because it's too uncomfortable and, and it makes the, the British Empire look bad and then Irish people will get really angry. We need to move on. That view is a colonial view. That means you're surf-minded. Alright? This view of 
Irish people, don't look at your history of oppression because if you do, you will become uncontrollably angry and hateful towards the British. That's a colonial view. That denies us intelligence, criticality, agency. Who the fuck wants us to think that? That's that's the old the old classic cartoon of the, of the Irish as this aggressive dynamite monkey. It's basically saying, don't pick up a book, don't read. Don't read and pick up a book and learn about your history because it will unleash the animalistic anger within you. That's a colonial view. I don't take that view at all. I am a, an intelligent, compassionate person and I'm capable of learning about and reading about my history and learning about the evils of the British Empire while at the same time loving English people, Scottish people, Welsh people as my fellow human beings and not holding them responsible for the actions of their great-great-great-grandparents. I'm an intelligent, compassionate person and I can do that. And you should do it as well. And there's nothing wrong with looking at our history from a decolonial perspective. Have some confidence in yourself as an Irish person. Don't, don't, uh, don't buy into the lie that we're violent and stupid. So, regarding Guinness, the beautiful pint that we all enjoy, if its roots, if its roots are from this anti-Catholic Protestant ascendancy unionist company, or, or company who did not like Catholics, even though they were selling us drink, if that's where it begins, then how did, how did that become our national drink? How is that synonymous with St. Patrick's Day? How is that the most Irish thing possible? Well, I'd like to talk about how psychologically we reclaimed it. We reclaimed the pint of Guinness and made the pint of Guinness our own and we made it us and we saw ourselves in the pint of Guinness and we made the pint of Guinness like us. So I'd like to explore a bit of that now after the ocarina pause. Okay, because I got a little hot take about the Irish psyche and the pint of Guinness. So here's the ocarina pause. You're going to hear an advert. I don't know what the advert will be for. The adverts are algorithmically generated, so everyone gets a different advert. I don't think Guinness advertise on my podcast. I don't. I don't think they do. Um. Here we go. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So that was the ocarina pause, so that you didn't suddenly get startled by an advert. Because sometimes the adverts are very loud and they interfere with the podcast hugs. So if I play the ocarina, you have a little warning. Um, support for this podcast comes from you, the listener, via the Patreon page. I occasionally have the odd advert on the podcast. But only if, only if I'm cool with them. They have to play by my rules. And I turn down quite a lot of... Sponsorships have gotten better for podcasts in Ireland. But I'm t- I turn down quite a lot of sponsors because I don't want them on the podcast. Or if if an, if an advertiser is like, we're going to advertise on your podcast, but you must now change. Like this, this podcast. Talking about the, the, the history of fucking Guinness. The, talking about the negative history of Guinness. That's a lot of fucking potential sponsors lost right there. But fuck them. Who gives a shit? Because if you want to come and advertise in this podcast, you can play by the rules. Other than that, it doesn't matter because this is a listener-funded podcast. This podcast is funded by you, the listener, via the Patreon page. Patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. What does this do? It gives me full editorial control to make a podcast about whatever I want, whatever tone I want. No one tells me what to do. Complete freedom making podcasts for ye based on what ye want it's also a huge amount of work this is my full time job it's my sole source of income I fucking adore doing it I love it when you become a patron you're you're paying me for the work I'm doing to make this podcast and you're paying for me to to be an artist to have that as my my full time job to be an artist because you can't make money as an artist anymore but when you have patrons, you can. So, that's it basically. If you're enjoying this podcast and you're liking it, consider becoming a patron. All I'm looking for is the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month. That's it. You get four podcasts a month. If you can't afford that, don't worry. You don't have to. If you can afford it, you're paying for someone else to listen when they can't afford it. So, everybody gets a podcast I get paid for the work that I'm doing. What more could you want? It's completely... It's a model that's based on kindness and soundness. And it's life-changing for me. It's fucking life-changing. This Patreon, man. I, I, I can plan things. I know where I can pay my bills. I can plan things. I know where my money is coming from. So thank you to all my patrons. So also Twitch. I'm writing a book at the moment. I've just begun writing my brand new book. So... I'm at the earliest stages of it. The very, very earliest stages after having taken a hiatus. So I'm only on Twitch once a week now on Thursday nights at half eight because I'm too busy writing. So if you want to see me live streaming on Twitch, come along and chat with me. Half eight, Thursday nights, twitch.tv forward slash the blind by podcast. It's good crack. So the beautiful, lovely, creamy pint of Guinness, which I'm sure all of you are thinking about and can't wait until we're back in a pub until we can actually drink a pint of Guinness 
Where's my hot take? So here's one hot take. Historically, regarding Guinness and Irishness, I view it the same way I do the English language. Okay? So, my theory there that Guinness was created during the penal laws by a powerful Protestant Unionist family and it sold massively in conditions which allowed for alcoholism. Like, also during the penal laws, we were forced to speak English. You couldn't speak Gaelic. You couldn't speak your native tongue. This was criminalised. This was punishable. So we started to speak English, a foreign language, a tool and an instrument of oppression, something that you're forced to speak, something that you're forced to speak to eradicate your culture and identity. But we spoke it, and then we made it our own. We made it the English language our own. We made it into Hiberno-English. You couldn't force it on us. You try and force English on us and we'll find our own way to speak it. And then we'll say, fuck you. We're going to create the greatest writers in the English language. Jonathan Swift, James Joyce, Flann O'Brien, the list goes on. And we reclaimed the English language, something that was forced on us, and made it our own and empowered ourselves with it and that's what the point of Guinness is I do initially view it as a tool of oppression but we reclaimed it we reclaimed it and made it our own so the point of Guinness that you hold in your hand and you drink and that brings us together and that we can rally around as, as Irish identity that's not the same point of Guinness that was sold to people 200 years ago by a company that hated its customers. So how the Irish reclaimed Guinness is we wrote into that drink, into that pint. The pint tells a little story of our emigration. The pint of Guinness. So Irish Irish people had to travel all over the world. One thing that that we've always had in our culture, for as long as Guinness has been around, we've had to emigrate. We've had to leave our country, either forced and taken away, or had to leave because of things like the penal laws, the famine, or just lack of work. We've had to go to Australia, we've had to go to the West Indies, we've had to go to America, and everywhere we went, Guinness followed where, you know, the shitty conditions that were created at home in, in Ireland, when we left, it created a demand for Guinness and a demand for Irish pubs. And one of the things about Guinness that makes it unique to, we'll say, just a lager or even wine or anything else, you know, why am I talking about what makes Guinness so special? What's the iconography of it? Well, one big thing around it is Guinness and travelling. Guinness doesn't travel well, is what we like to say. Or the Guinness doesn't taste as good there as it tastes here. Guinness is never allowed to just be a drink. Guinness is something which is... It's at its best in Ireland. And then depending on where it travels to, it tastes different. 
And our goal as Irish people, depending on what country we go to, is to find the place with the Guinness that travels the best, the one that tastes like it does back home in Ireland. And I can't think of another drink like that. Even with fucking wine. Wine has all its vintages and its grape and its years. But I don't associate... I never, I'd never hear someone saying... You know, being in a restaurant in Australia and saying, can I have some French wine? Drinking it and then saying, nah, I'd be better back in France. No, you don't. It's like the wine is from France and I assume it has travelled well. And even though I'm in Australia and I'm paying a shitload of money for it, I'm essentially drinking French fucking wine here and it's really good. But with Guinness, it's like, not a fucking hope, buddy. What do you mean? taste it it doesn't taste right we're in sydney and this guinness tastes different and you sip it and you go yeah it doesn't travel guinness doesn't travel well and there's an element of truth to it there is an element of truth to it but we also grossly over exaggerate it we we as irish people grossly and performatively over exaggerate guinness and traveling and how well it travels and how well it doesn't travel and the best point again is there and the best point again is here. And like I said, to an extent it is true. My favourite type of Guinness, because I, I don't really... Like Guinness for me, I'm not a huge Guinness drinker. I drink Guinness socially. If I'm meeting people and I'm having one or two pints, then that pint would be a pint of Guinness, right? But if I'm at home having cans, I like Polish cans. I'm not going to buy cans of Guinness. But if I'm to drink Guinness at home for enjoyment, I drink Guinness West Indies Porter. And what Guinness West Indies Porter is, is it's it's based on a recipe from like the 1800s. There, there's Guinness West Indies Porter and Guinness Foreign Extra or f- Export. Those are the two that I like. And basically what these Guinnesses are is when the Irish were in the West Indies and why were the Irish in the West Indies because a bunch of Irish were sent over there as indentured servants I've spoken about this on other podcasts and they then became slave owners of course but there was a lot of Irish people in the West Indies Guinness is huge in Jamaica Um, when the Guinness was travelling from Ireland to the West Indies it, it wouldn't travel well. It wouldn't. When, by the time the Guinness got to the West Indies, it wasn't right. So Guinness West Indies Porter is, they added extra hops and they added extra alcohol. So it's a very hoppy Guinness with a high percentage of alcohol. It's got between 6 and 8% alcohol. So that's the Guinness I like to drink when I'm at home because it has more of a kick to it. I like it. But that exists because Guinness didn't travel to the West Indies back in the 18th century now I'm sure it travels fine with modern technology so like that's an actual example of of Guinness not travelling well where they had to create a new recipe so it would make the West Indies in the fucking 1800s on ships that took six months in wooden barrels but there's also the real the performative element of Guinness not travelling I'll give you an example here in Limerick now Limerick is three hours from Dublin so we have this mythology in Limerick where we're, we're a little bit jealous of Cork. Down in Cork, which is the southernmost part of Ireland, Cork has its own stout. Cork has got Beamish. So Beamish is stout, which is the same type of beer that Guinness is, 
and it's it's Cork exclusive. So Cork has its own stout. Limerick used to have its own stout. Now it does now. It's got Treaty City, Treaty City Brewery, which only opened in the past ten years. But 150 years ago, Limerick used to have its own brewery that would make Limerick stout, and that's what people in Limerick would drink. But then Guinness built a canal, because here's the shtick. Guinness couldn't travel on horseback from Dublin to Limerick. By the time the Guinness went on wooden barrels on the back of a horse on cobbly stones in the 18th century, by the time it got to Limerick, it was shit. The head was gone. It was all, the bubbles were gone. You couldn't drink it. So Guinness, the fucking corporation or the company, they built a network of, of canals around Ireland and one of them led straight to Limerick. So now... 150 years ago they could put the Guinness on a barge up in Dublin and it would make a really gentle journey all the way down to Limerick on a boat and when the Guinness got to Limerick it was lovely but then what did that do it shut down Limerick's brewery so Limerick now no longer had its own porter but Cork was too far no matter what you did even when you got as far as Limerick with the Guinness by the time it got to Cork it was shit so Cork got to keep its brewery. Cork had Beamish, its own stout. And we in Limerick have this mythology where we're jealous of fucking Cork. Because, oh, they got to keep their stout and Guinness ruined our brewery. So what I think we've done as Irish people with the pint of Guinness is that we've written into it the story of our own journey of travelling. Okay. And what I mean by that is that it's to the immigrant, to the person who went to Australia, to the person who went to America, and this is going back 200 fucking years, the pint of Guinness represents the Irish journey to get to that place. You think of how the pint of Guinness is poured. You know, it's it goes straight into the fucking glass and it's this stormy dark cloud not unlike the waters that someone would have been looking at when they were on a ship travelling to America or travelling to Australia they look down and they see these dark waters and then in as the pint of Guinness starts rumbling in the glass and rising you know the white foam rises to the top and this reminds us of the waves the white crests of the waves in the murky black dark waters and then most importantly, what you have to do with the pint of Guinness, and this is what separates porter or stout from other drinks, and in particular Guinness, you have to wait for your Guinness. You can't just drink it straight from the tap. you got to chill the fuck out, and you have to wait. And while you're waiting and staring at your Guinness as it becomes the perfect pint, I think, because looking at a, at, at a Guinness settling is... It's a visual beauty which is on par with looking into a fire. It's so intricate in how the bubbles rise and how the colours go from brown to cream to black. It's a beautiful thing to watch and you can't not watch it just like the way you can't not watch a fire burning. I think this, this pint glass, when you do that to the human mind, it creates a contemplative space. Watching your pint of Guinness settle and rise, immediately it's a contemplative space. 
you get a little moment of flow seeing these complex patterns. You naturally reflect while staring at the pint of Guinness. What's also fascinating about Guinness is the, is the language, the language around it. You must wait for a pint of Guinness for it to settle. Like liquid doesn't, I don't associate liquid with settling. I never look at a glass of water and say a glass of water needs to settle or even a pint of lager and say a pint of lager needs to settle. Settling, settling is the opposite of travelling. The language of travel has now been brought into this pint of Guinness. People settle. Liquid doesn't settle. Sediment settles, mud settles, people settle. Liquid doesn't settle. So why do we have a fucking drink which is you know drank by emigrants and immigrants far away from Ireland with this drink that settles what the Irish psyche has done is we we have we've projected the narrative of our own journey of emigration onto these little black drinks that's what we've done and when you're over in London or you're in Australia or New York and you're missing home and you you have this little drink and the Irish people around you have it too and the drink settles and you finish the narrative by taking a sup you've completed a little journey a little story that makes the Irish person feel as if I've made the journey I've made the journey I've done the big trip I'm here now I'm settling I'm settling and the obsession with this Guinness not travelling well which is hyperbole it's an exaggeration the exaggerated performance of no you get the best Guinness there you get the best it's not the same as it was back in fucking Limerick it's not the same as it was back in Mayo you're just you're imbibing the 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 emigrant narrative journey into your drink that's what it is you're imbibing a narrative into it a narrative that doesn't really exist certainly not nowadays like Okay, I've been in America. The Guinness does taste slightly different in America, not because it doesn't travel, because it's made differently in America. In Australia, Australian Guinness has a slight taste of strawberry to it. Very strange. But the Guinness in England, it's the same shit. It's made in Dublin. You're not going to taste the difference. And anyone who says they're tasting the difference, you know, it's it's performative. They're, They're pretending. Now, it can be poured badly, and then it'll taste different. And it's tied in as well with the Irish pub. Like, when I first started touring, doing gigs, going to Canada, going to Australia, going to England years ago, like a tradition within the Irish community, when you go to a, to Sydney, when you go to Toronto, one of the first things you do is you search for the Irish pub. And people say, why do you do that? You have to settle yourself first. You have to settle yourself first. Settle yourself in the Irish pub if you're in New York because you'll get overwhelmed. You'll get overwhelmed by the tall buildings. It's all too new. So go to the Irish pub where everything in there looks exactly like back home. The windows are are blacked out. You might as well be in Thurless. Settle yourself in the Irish pub. Have a Guinness. The Guinness settles. Drink your own journey. Drink a pint of the journey that you took with the dark murky waters and the fucking waves rushing up and drink that journey and then you settle and that's what the Guinness is that that's that's what it is we've reclaimed it by 
that's our food culture. We've, we've, we've imbibed the narrative into a fucking drink. And then you get to hold it and you get to look around at the other Irish people and they're holding the same drink and it's like wearing a little badge on your fist. A drinkable fist badge. But above all, the pint of Guinness is... It's reliable. It's reliable. You rely upon it. You want, you expect and want consistency with it. You never want two pints to be different. Every pint must be perfectly poured, taste the same. And that's your pint of Guinness, your settled Guinness that's fucking reliable amongst the pressures and chaos of life. And the best example of this within culture, of course, is the poem by Flann O'Brien, who's my favourite writer. Flann O'Brien wrote a poem called The Workman's Friend. And this is a poem about a pint of Guinness, which is, I think he wrote it in the 1950s. So... He refers to the pint of Guinness in this poem as a pint of plain because in Dublin vernacular at that time a pint of plain was just simply a, a, pint of, a pint of stout but it's about Guinness. When things go wrong and will not come right though you do the best you can when life looks black as the hour of night a pint of plain is your only man. When money's tight and hard to get and your horse has also ran when all you have is a heap of debt a pint of plain is your only man. When health is bad and your heart feels strange and your face is pale and wan. When doctors say you need a change, a pint of plain is your only man. When food is scarce and your larder bare and no rashers grease your pan. When hunger grows as your meals are rare, a pint of plain is your only man. In times of trouble and lousy strife, you have still got a darling plan. You can still turn to a brighter life. A pint of plain is your only man. So that's Flann O'Brien just saying a pint of plain is your only man. And what that is, that means reliability. Rock solid. No matter what the fuck happens. No matter what shit is going on. You can have a fucking reliable pint of Guinness. No matter where you are in the world. A nice settled pint of Guinness. Will ground you. And... I, I like that poem, but it, it annoys me because I fucking adore Flann O'Brien, and that is that's not his best work. That's that's not even that's not even amongst his good work, to tell you the truth, lads. But it's his best known work, and that bothers me. It's like when fucking David Bowie died, and everyone started talking about his appearance in Labyrinth, and I just had to turn off the internet and go, David Bowie's dead, and you're talking about fucking Labyrinth, where he played an elf, a ye. It's like that. It's 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 his best known work, but fuck me, go and read the Third Policeman. So my my historical hot take on Guinness: it was a penal law drink to oppress the Irish people, and then we reclaimed it as something into which we could write the story of our own emigration, and then drink that as a way of settling ourselves. So Guinness now, Guinness in the age of memes. Guinness, as it, what does it mean to millennials, we'll say, in Generation Z? Um, I was drawn, I started off the podcast by saying that I was asked during the week to contribute to an article about Guinness. And the person writing the article, Polly, he drew, it, drew my attention towards a Rubber Bandits sketch from 2010 that I'd forgotten about called The Rubber Bandits Guide to London. And there's just a little bit in the sketch 
where me and Mr. Chrome are in London in an Irish pub and the kind of sketch is we're sitting down with two pints of Guinness in front of us and we're going, I'm scared to drink it. I'm scared to drink the Guinness. Why? In case it's different to the Guinness back home. And I'd forgotten that and I was... When I wrote that, I was actually taking the piss out of older lads. That wasn't something in 2010 that young lads would say to each other. I was taking the piss out of our lads. That's like something. We were in an old Irish part of London. And this Guinness not being the same back home thing was something I'd have heard from like my dad. So I was taking the piss out of that then. And the comedy from it was the absurdity of two lads in their early 20s. Genuinely worried that a Guinness in London is different to a Guinness back home. That was an antiquated idea and that's why I thought it was funny in 2010. And I'd forgotten about that completely and I found it amusing now that this has returned as an acceptable position. This is now an acceptable position that once again the Guinness is different back home than it is abroad. That was a that was a fucking dark weekend. If you look at that sketch as well, the Rubber Bandit's Guide to London, literally those two pints of Guinness in front of us were the first ever Guinness I had drank outside of Ireland. I th- it was my first time in London. It was my first time in London. And that was, you know, legally being able to drink as well. But uh, yeah, that was a dark weekend. RTE brought us over. And RTE, of course, are cheap, cheap fuckers. And... They put me up in a in they put me up in a hotel room where your man Dennis Nielsen had murdered a lot of people. And there was vomit behind my headboard. It was a horrible, freaky fucking hotel. And then I looked it up afterwards and, and Dennis Nielsen had murdered people there. So that's what I remember. Rather than my first pint of Guinness, I remember staying in Dennis Nielsen's hotel room. The 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 first of two occasions where I unwittingly stayed in a hotel room where a mass murder occurred. The second time being in 2013 where I stayed in Queen Street in a str- in Sydney. Is it Sydney or Melbourne? I think it's Melbourne. Queen Street in Melbourne where the Queen Street massacre occurred. My, my, my hotel room and bed was on the floor where the Queen Street massacre occurred and several murders happened where my bed was. So that's twice unwittingly that's happened to me. Back to Guinness. What is this new definition of Guinness in 2021? What what is what does a pint of Guinness mean to us today? What does it say about ourselves? What does it say about our identity? So it's it's changed slightly. So firstly, I do not associate a pint of Guinness with getting drunk. Okay? Our parents' generation might have. Because when you went to the pub in the 70s, 80s, early 90s, you had a choice of three drinks from the taps, and it was usually Guinness, uh, some type of lager, and if you're lucky, cider, and that was it. And in a good bar, they might have bottles. So people drank Guinness to get utterly pissed. But culturally today, a pint of Guinness doesn't mean getting really, really drunk. It, It just doesn't. A pint of Guinness... Today means responsible socialising. That's, semiotically, that's what it communicates. A pint of Guinness 
as people use it on Instagram. Think of it. If you look at Instagram and your friends are out and they all have pints of Guinness and nice smiles on their faces and they're, you know, posing for a, a, a photograph on Instagram pre-COVID, it doesn't look like they're out for a mad one. It looks like we've gone to the pub for conversation as nice, responsible adults and we're going to slowly drink our lovely, perfect, settled pints of Guinness. We're going to slowly drink these and talk and maybe have three and no one's getting shit-faced. So the pint of Guinness doesn't connote drunkenness to Irish people in 2021. To Americans, yes, it does. They go, I'm going to go to Temple Bar and drink 90 Guinness and get pissed. That's not what Guinness is today in Ireland. Of course, people are still drinking it and getting drunk. Of course. But that's not what it communicates. I think what Guinness means today to millennials, and I say millennial, millennial is basically anyone from the ages of 25 to 40. That's a millennial. You can kind of include a bit of Gen Z in this, but they might be a bit young for it. A pint of Guinness means I am an adult. That's what it communicates. I am an, a responsible adult and I'm having a Guinness now. I might have one or two and I'm going to sip it slowly with friends on a work night because I've got responsibilities in the morning. I'm an adult. That's what Guinness communicates today. Taking a photograph of a beautiful pint of Guinness and posting it on your Instagram is also a thing that we do. Everyone wants to get that perfect pint. It's... You post the pint of Guinness and it's like saying, ah, work is finished. I'm relaxing. I'm chilling. I'm having this. Isn't it beautiful? Look at this lovely pint of Guinness. I'm going to appreciate this drink. I'm going to drink this slowly with friends over conversation and this is going to be nice. I'm a responsible adult. Now, I mentioned at the start of the podcast, one thing that has signified this new meaning of Guinness for me is the Instagram page shit London Guinness, okay? The people... So here's what in, here's what's interesting about the shit London Guinness Instagram page. It was started by a fella called Ian, right? And Ian had recently moved to London. He's from Cork and started to notice shit pints of Guinness in various pubs in London. So again, it's it's exercising that Irish emigrant thing. It's Guinness doesn't travel well to London, but it's not it's not the the Guinness's problem this time. It's the cultural knowledge of how to correctly fetishize and pour the perfect pint that has not traveled well to London. And now you have all these bars who think it's appropriate to serve Guinness in a Foster's glass. So by calling it a shit London pint, what you're doing basically is you're stamping your Irishness, your authenticity. So this page shit London Guinness It's got 100,000 likes, most of the Irish people. So if it has 100,000 fucking likes in a year, that means it's really popular and it has its finger on on the pulse of something cultural. Now, what I find really interesting is Ian, who runs Shit London Guinness, he used to run a meme page, a very popular Irish meme page called Humans of the Sesh. Now, Humans of the Sesh was... An Irish meme page that fetishized the sesh. Right? And this was about 2015, 2016. And 
the lads who were creating this page, they would have been 1920 at the time when they made Humans of the Sesh, and the audience would have been about that age too. Humans of the Sesh also created the phrase, which became a meme, Big Massive Bag of Cans with the Lads. Now, Big Massive Bag of Cans with the Lads was something everybody would have said like five, six years ago. Big Massive Bag of Cans with the Lads and the Sesh and Humans of the Sesh what that meant was people in their early 20s drinking a big massive bag of cans at a festival or at a house party, drinking really cheap cans just to get drunk and fucked up. And shit London Guinness is now made by the same people except they're about 26, 27. So the fetishization of the perfect pint of Guinness, it's just like a step up from the sesh. The person who engages in the sesh, the sesh is a mad explosion of drink and drugs and partying in a house party. Like, when I said earlier, when I see a pint of Guinness on Instagram, I don't associate that with someone getting drunk. What you associate with people getting drunk is photographs of cans in someone's house. People don't really... Getting drunk in the pub... Of course you get drunk in the pub, but like, pints are really expensive. Pints are really, really expensive. So, people tend to get blind shit face fucked up at house parties, at seshes. And then when you go to the pub, that's more drinking responsibly now. People still get drunk, but going mad is festivals and house parties. The pub is is losing its potency as a site of drunkenness in Irish culture, if that makes sense. I'm not saying it's completely lost its potency. It's losing the potency it once had as a site of drunkenness. And the house party and the sesh has taken over from that. But yeah, but I think the the current fetishization, fetishization of the perfect Guinness pint as it appears on Instagram as is represented by the average person who likes the page Shit London Guinness, it's a marker of adulthood. It's people who are now 26, 27, who five years ago were having a big massive bag of cans with the lads or engaging in the sesh. Now these are people who have jobs. They might live in London. They might live in Canada. They have responsibilities. And now they're finding a responsible way to drink the pint of Guinness. The pint of Guinness in 2021 has almost become the glass of wine. It's almost the glass of wine. You don't go mad on Guinness. You sip it slowly with friends. You appreciate its aesthetic beauty. To skull a pint of Guinness is to waste a pint of Guinness. You have to truly enjoy it. It's narrative. And I think that's a good thing. I think that's really healthy. And it's a sign of... It's confident. There's a there's a great confidence in that. To to appreciate your pint of Guinness is, is a confident act. It says, I'm capable of restraint. I'm capable of appreciating aesthetics. I know who I am. And it's very far removed from the image of the pint of Guinness as it's represented in, in Paddy's Day, in St. Patrick's Day, which is more of an, uh, an American view which views pints of Guinness as getting utterly shit-faced. Like, even in America, 
there's a type of Guinness that you can buy in America that you can only buy in America. I think it's called Guinness Lager. Basically what it is is that it's a weak American lager that's just black with a white head. So it's not an actual pint of Guinness. It's made by Guinness. But all it's for is for Yanks on Paddy's Day who can't deal with the taste of Guinness. So they have to have this fake black beer that looks like Guinness just for the photographs. And this this recent fetishization of Guinness where it's been it's been it's it's been culturally raised as like I said something that's analogous to I didn't say that right analogous that's a word out there there you go now I've just learned a word I can't say analogous analogous I've only ever written that down I've never said it out loud an, an analogous in 2021 a pint of Guinness is an analog of a glass of wine amongst Irish millennials and I don't mean a glass of wine when Irish people drink a glass of wine we can't really drink a glass of wine because we go look at me I'm a responsible adult drinking a glass of wine but I'm also classy that's what wine means to us we're not ready for wine yet wine is fancy classy and posh okay Guinness is not what I mean when I say that a pint of Guinness is becoming an analogue to a glass of wine I mean the way a glass of wine is to a millennial in France or Spain if a person in France or Spain or Italy has a glass of wine they're not looking at their glass of wine going look at me I'm so posh and fancy with my wine they're going no here is some wine it's part of my culture it's not expensive it's an adult drink to be sipped amongst friends and appreciated and that's what Guinness has become it's our wine it's not pretentious when an Irish person drinks a glass of wine in that way there's an element of pretension it's I'm a responsible adult but ooh aren't I also classy with my wine with Guinness it's quite simply here's a fucking pint of Guinness this is mine it's my culture this is my drink and I'm sipping this with friends socially and isn't it beautiful and it's very wholesome and it's very authentic. A couple of things have done this in my opinion. The disappearance of nightclubs. The fact that like I said pubs are in, in Irish culture pubs are no longer becoming exclusive sites of drunkenness. Sites of drunkenness tend more to be house parties. Instagram has played a large part. And then the absolute explosion of this over the past year. Coronavirus you know why is an instagram page with just beautiful pints of guinness becoming so popular in the past year because we can't fucking have them we can't have them we can't go to the pub and have the beautiful perfect pint of guinness because they're all closed because we're in lockdown and i remember in july when lockdown was lifted slightly and we could get a pint in a restaurant everyone was talking about oh my god we've been in lockdown for three months I can't wait until my first pint it became an unwritten unwritten rule in Ireland that if you're going to post your first pint it must be Guinness people were getting shamed for posting pints of Heineken pints of Peroni people were getting shamed what the fuck are you posting this for this is your first pint in three months that you're allowed to have you were only allowed post a pint of Guinness so the Guinness has become uber fetishized because we can't really have it. The other thing with Guinness too, you can try your best with a can at home. 
Guinness from a fucking tap in a pub is a different experience from Guinness in a can, even if there's a widget. So, it's now uber fetishized because we can't fucking have it. It's that simple. Unless you've got a tap in your gaff, you're not getting that perfect pint of Guinness. Was Guinness... What Was Guinness seen as like a responsible markerhood of I am a responsible adult with their shit together and I'm not going to go mad? Was it Was it this way 10 years ago? No, it fucking wasn't. And I'm going to tell you why not because I'm going to tell you... I'm going to end this on the tale of Arthur's Day. Arthur's Day... Arthur's Day was fucking mad. Arthur's Day was a very short-lived annual event from 2009 to 2013 and I fucking remember it okay Arthur's Day was it started in 2009 as the 250th anniversary of the Guinness company and basically like what it was is Ireland tried to do Paddy's Day too we tried to have a second Patrick's Day because 2009 was the height of the fucking recession the country was fucked. Everyone had emigrated. The only people left who were young were students. That was it. So Ireland decided we need to have another St. Patrick's Day in September because this might bring some tourists and people will drink and good God, we need money in the economy. So Guinness invented this fictional day called Arthur's Day, which was an absolute fucking disaster. I think it was like at at 6 o'clock. Everyone had to raise their pint of Guinness at 6 o'clock to Arthur and say to Arthur, the fucking Protestant Unionist who hated Catholics. Everyone had to raise their glass to Arthur, right? But really what it was is... Now, I remember it being fucking great because it was around the time of Horse Outside. We had a, we had a huge fucking hit and, and all these hits on YouTube... And, and our, our career as the Rubber Bandits went really big at a time when the recession was fucking terrible and all the young people were gone. So we couldn't get any gigs. There was No one had money to go to gigs at all. So even though our songs were doing well, we weren't doing fucking gigs and earning money because there was no young people. So what happened is, Arthur's Day was, it actually meant you got fucking paid. So we I think we gigged every single Arthur's Day in some venue in Dublin and got paid really well to do it by Guinness because it's not ticket sales but it was carnage it was basically a giant drinks promotion and tourists didn't bother coming over for it unfortunately as well when the fuck was it man it was at the end of September which coincided with a lot of freshers weeks with college so the level of fucking debauchery and public drunkenness that Arthur's Day caused was unparalleled there was no tourists around it was just drunk students from the country in Dublin getting their first taste of being unspeakably drunk and Guinness became synonymous at that time because it was Arthur's Day the Guinness was cheap wasn't expensive and a lot of places were just throwing it out for free so you had this never ending fucking Guinness Everyone was rat arsed. And what I'll tell you what caused the end of Arthur's Day. It was at the start of like 2010, people sharing things on YouTube and sharing things on Facebook. 
and videos started to go viral of instead of Guinness wanting to see Arthur's Day as this big celebration, videos started to go viral for the first time of unbelievable public drunkenness. And I know, I'll tell you the video that fucking ended it because it went viral on YouTube and it went viral on Facebook around 2010, 2011 and I remember it well. It was just Temple Bar, about a thousand students jumping around singing and it's the middle of the day it's clearly like three o'clock in the day and everyone is so so drunk and a circle emerges in the middle of temple bar and everyone's screaming and roaring and then into the circle these two lads of about 19 or 20 start dancing in the middle of the circle while everyone's cheering around them and there's bottles smashing on the ground people are throwing glasses there's it's chaos the two lads are really happy but they're in an ecstatic drunk trance it's not healthy whatever type of, it's like it was like a Hieronymus Bosch painting I'm gonna do a, a podcast on Hieronymus Bosch but it was really was like a vision of hell in Temple Bar on Arthur's Day and there's all these pints of Guinness flying around the place in plastic glasses too which is never a good look and people throwing Guinness in the air because it's free so these two lads anyway a circle emerges and they're dancing in the middle then they strip down completely naked so now you have these two fully naked young men drunk and one of them starts rolling around on the ground on broken glass and now there's blood all over his chest but everyone is just screaming and roaring and entranced in the sheer debauchery this awful energy so one lad has blood coming down his fucking naked chest fully naked and then he grabs the other man the other the other boy as blood drips down his chest and he picks the other man up picks his naked body up and holds him like a guitar as the people the drunk people of Dublin cheer and then he starts playing his dick like a guitar he starts holding the other the other man like a guitar and playing his dick as blood streams down his chest and then Arthur's day was over and that was it it was just we can't do that again we can't, this is going to hurt Guinness this is going to hurt Guinness more than the fucking IRA and that video went viral and Arthur's day ended 2013 done no more this is not a <laughs> and that's what Guinness meant in 2011 <laughs> that Guinness was fucked It was like, this is the drink that you drink to roll around on the cobbles of Dublin in the wet freezing rain at two o'clock in the daytime. Get naked, roll around in glass and play your friend's dick like a guitar. That's what Guinness means. So I just think it's fantastic in 2021 that it's gone full circle to now mean. And those lads, they're probably 30 now. Those lads, God bless them. With the blood on their chest playing each other's dicks. They're probably 30 now. And I'm sure. They might even be listening to this podcast. Fair play to you. I'm sure they're now on Instagram. With their lovely perfect pints of Guinness. Going look at me ma'am. I'm a responsible adult. With my perfect pint of Guinness. And I have a job and responsibilities. And I'm certainly not going to slice my chest open. And play someone's dick. So that's my hot take on Guinness. That's my hot take on Guinness. I hope you enjoyed that. I'm sure there was other shit I wanted to talk about. 
was there? Yeah, yeah. One, one redeeming thing. One redeeming 2010s thing for Guinness. And it kind of ties in as well with chicken fillet rolls too. Barack Obama visited Ireland in... I think it was a 20, 2012. It was about 2012. So Barack Obama visited Ireland. Now, as I mentioned last week, when Barack Obama visited Ireland, the village of Moneygall in Offaly, to visit his, his, because he had Irish ancestors, his ancestral home, we built a petrol station in his honour. And with some fine fucking crows there today eating sausage rolls, we built a petrol station in his honour, because that's what we do now in Ireland. And, but also, just a stone's throw from Barack Obama Plaza. Was it called Ollie Smith's? What was the name of the pub he went to? A stone's throw from Barack Obama Plaza. Barack Obama went to the little village of Moneygall, his ancestral home, and he went to the local pub, Ollie Hayes's, because they're still dining out on it. They're still, they have a caricature of Obama. Barack Obama went to this little Irish pub, and any time a foreign dignitary or a famous person comes to Ireland, they have to drink the pint of Guinness. Sometimes a famous person who's in an Irish pub is asked to go behind the counter of the bar and pull a pint of Guinness, which if you're a famous person listening, never do that because you're always going to get it wrong. Don't go behind the bar and publicly pull a pint of Guinness. You're going to get it wrong and you'll be judged. So when a famous dignitary comes to Ireland, they have to drink a pint of Guinness, no matter who the fuck it is. And we judge them. We judge them on how they drink it. Barack Obama fucking nailed it. Barack Obama, he was in the pub. It's like, here's his ancestral home. He's given the pint of Guinness, right? And he just drinks it. He he, he, he really did a good job. It was, a, it was good for his image. It was good for the image of Guinness. He's given the pint of Guinness, perfectly poured. And the way he sips it. He sips the Guinness like someone who's just done a hard day's work who was really looking forward to it. He takes about an inch, a good inch, a proper gulp. This was someone who has drink, who's drank Guinness before. This is someone who appreciates it, who enjoys it. But though he was able to communicate, I have worked for this pint. I have worked for this. Because the first sup of Guinness is always the big one. That's the first sup of the first pint. That's the big sup. And then the rest is sipped. He went straight for it. He nailed it. And actually that was 2011. So Barack Obama's fantastic sipping. And and, and when he does it as well, the whole pub just goes, Way! Because he did such a brilliant job of sipping the pint. At that moment, it's like he's a paddy. His great-grandfather was from Moneygall, this man's a paddy. You're Irish. That was real proper Guinness fucking drinking. Fair play to you, Barack. But all his all that good work was undone by the lad who played his friend's dick like a fucking guitar <laughs> with blood streaming down his chest. All right. God bless. Um, I'll talk to you next week.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 